Good morning. I think I can still say Merry Christmas on December 26th, if you'll allow it. Uh, If you were here Friday, I hope uh, at our Christmas Eve service it was encouraging for you, and uh, it was served as a, uh, I think for my family, it serves as a final pointer to what we have been by the time the 24th rolls around, what we have been thinking on and celebrating and remembering uh, for about a month. So I hope that was a final pointer for you. Uh, and I hope, I hope it spilled over into Christmas Day. I don't know if this phenomenon has ever happened. If, as I've begun to do Advent more seriously and focused with my kids over the last several years, this phenomenon happens where all of that buildup to Advent just kind of goes poof on the 25th, right? Because there's all these other things that are there to distract our attention. I hope that was not the case for you, that if you, in fact, were thinking of Advent and spending those few weeks intentionally uh, thinking on what the birth of Christ means for us and our anticipation of his return, I hope it did not go poof for you yesterday, but uh, spilled over into Christmas Day. We enjoyed Christmas at my home yesterday, uh, but the day did not quite end like we expected. As the associate pastor, my, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of the, the elder who's most naturally on deck to preach when Lonnie can't be here. Uh, but when your phone rings at 8.30 on Christmas Eve and you're putting the kids to bed and it's downstairs, you don't, you know, you don't jump up to go answer it. And then your wife's phone rings and you still think it's downstairs, it's Christmas, that's fine. And then your phone rings again immediately after and you think, you know, I probably ought to go answer the phone And when you're the associate pastor, that happens, and the senior pastor is on the other end of the line, and it's 8.30 on Saturday night, normally that can only mean one thing. So, indeed, indeed, Will, you've been there, brother, and uh, for for that matter, you've been there much later than 8.30 on a Saturday. Um, But uh, indeed, uh, Lonnie uh, has tested positive for COVID as of last night, as has his son, Jake, Uh, I spoke with them last night. They seem to be relatively asymptomatic, so are doing fine. But if you would, remember them in your prayers this week. Nobody wants that to happen and plans for that to happen and and, uh, certainly uh, is disruptive, any of you that have had that. So continue to pray for them this week. But I will say, in God's providence, I had already been scheduled to preach next week on January 2nd. So I was well into preparations on a sermon in Philippians. So um, I told Lonnie, I said, no, no big deal. I, I know what I'm preaching on, and I'm more or less ready. So, um, you know, stay home and, and be well. And uh, we will be in good hands, not because I've prepared, not because of anything to do with me, but because uh, we all, of course, every week come to gather around the Word of God. So I take comfort in that. I hope you will take comfort in that. If you did come today, though, uh, prepared for Romans, you know, we, we preach uh, expositionally if you're visiting with us. So um, more or less, you, you come to church on Sunday knowing what's going to be preached because you can find out where we left off last Sunday and go to the next verse and in that next little section is where we're going to be. So if you came expecting for that to happen in Romans, I do apologize, but if you could switch gears, uh, switch gears into Philippians. So when you're flipping to your Bible, just, you know, keep going a few more pages and uh, you'll get there into Philippians and we'll be in chapter 1 verses 12 through 18 of Philippians. 
uh, since the summer, as I've had opportunity to preach, I've been preaching through Philippians, so that, that puts the, the dual tracks that we're on as a church in Romans and Philippians. We're coming up to the end of Romans, but we're just in the very beginning of Philippians. It's an intimate letter. It's between Paul and his, his beloved brothers and sisters at the church in Philippi. He enjoys uh, quite a healthy relationship with the church there. He is currently, as he writes this, in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to the church in Philippi to, to rekindle their, their relationship. They've sent him a gift, and he's, he's writing in response to that gift. And he enjoys this, this deep fellowship, this deep partnership with them, even while he is incarcerated. The last text we looked at uh, was verses 7 through 11 of chapter 1. And, and Paul expressed this deep affection that he has for the Philippians, and he prays for them there. In that section, he prays that, that everything they would do might be done with discernment for love of God and for glory of God. But today, as we go into verse 12 of Philippians, Paul begins his first major section of discourse. So everything, everything we've looked at so far from verses 1 through 11 has been by way of introduction. And now with verse 12, Paul begins his first major section. This runs from uh, more or less chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 18. Some of you may be familiar with um, a fellow named Robert Murray McShane. He was a, a Scottish pastor who served there in uh, the, the first half of the 19th century. And a friend here at, at Four Corners recently gave me a book of his. He wrote a book of letters to his church. He, McShane was not well. He was not physically well, not physically healthy. And for a period in his ministry, he had to take a leave. He had to take a leave from his church, and he retired to Edinburgh to spend some time with his parents while he recovered. He ended up dying young. He died at, at the age of 29. But he took a leave from his ministry for a while, and while he was on leave, he, he wrote these letters to his church. So they, they read very much like, uh, like New Testament epistles. And uh, this is what he writes. In the first letter, he writes back to his church. This is dated January 30th, 1839. McShane writes this. Still, I would shortly persuade you that it is well. The Lord doeth all things well. And that it may be really for the furtherance of the gospel amongst you. So he goes on to give four reasons why his absence from his church, unexpected absence, might actually be for the furtherance of the gospel for them. This is reason number one. With respect to myself, suffice it to say, it has been a precious opportunity in which to reflect on the sins and imperfections of my ministry among you. A calm, get this, a calm hour with God is worth more than a whole lifetime with man. He goes on, number two. With regard to you, this time of trial is for your furtherance. Does God not teach you by means of it, that is, by means of your trial? Does God not teach you to look beyond man to the Savior who abideth forever? Then he says, with regard to those among you who are almost but not altogether persuaded to be Christians, does not his providence teach you to make sure of an interest in Christ without delay? So the point of McShane's letter, at least this first letter, is that while he is unable to, to carry out the duties God has given him in the manner he would like, 
Nevertheless, this unexpected turn of events will result in the furtherance of the gospel. That is the same circumstance that Paul writes from in our text today in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So if you would please stand. If you've been around here any length of time, you know our custom is to go back to the beginning of the chapter. So we will do that. We'll start in Philippians chapter 1, read 1 through 18. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All that has been by way of introduction. Now today's text. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from sel- out of selfish ambition, Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. You can have a seat. Let's go to God in prayer. I just, I just made mention that we can, we can be confident in the fact that we come today hearing from the word of God, not because I'm prepared, not because uh, of, of anything in me or Lonnie, but because it's the Holy Spirit who, who, who gives light and illumination to the words in the text. So let's go now in prayer and ask for that. God, we love you and we're grateful to be here, but we are not here purely because we have loved you first. Indeed, we have not loved you first. You've loved us and you have sent your son to die and that even while we were still sinners, he died for us. And that message, one God, is is for those who have believed, captivates us. And we now gather in worship to praise you for that, what you have done and what we have just celebrated for a month in your, your coming, your first advent. God, we anticipate your second coming of your Son in glory and splendor, and it gives us hope as we await that day. Until then, God, I pray that we would, we would see the words in the Holy Scripture that you have given us, that they may land on us and, 
And for those who have never seen before, God, I pray, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, you may lift the veil. May they see with unveiled face for the first time as we will all see one day, those of us who are in Christ. Would you give us understanding this morning? Would you give us uh, focus? And would you free us from distraction so that we might hear what you have for us today? It's in the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is The Unbound Gospel. And uh, three, three points will guide us through that. We will, we will notice in the text the surprising advance, the dual fronts, and the singular aim. Even if you don't have them there, I'll walk you through them. There we go. Let's start there at the beginning. This is the surprising advance of the gospel in verse 12. Paul begins to pull back the curtain. This is the first major section of discourse, as we said. And Paul starts to pull back the curtain for his readers in Philippi on what's going on in Rome. Undoubtedly, this would have been of great interest to the Philippians. They, they would have known of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. Surely they've heard rumors of that. They may have heard how, how treacherous his journey was across the Mediterranean in the, in the ship to get to Rome. They know he's in prison because they've sent him this gift. But what is the status there in Rome? They don't know. What has been the effect of this unexpected turn of events on Paul's ministry? That's what he sets out to communicate to the Philippians. And so they would have known uh, some measure of what, of what happened to them. And Paul will say in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and that's really all he gives us. The Philippians may have understood that context, but I don't just want to assume that we understand what's packed into what has happened to me, because there's a lot packed into what has happened to me. I was initially going to recap that in Acts, but then I came across this in a commentary, this paragraph, and this is a recap of what's packed into what has happened to me. What happened began in Acts 21, 17, when the apostles set foot in Jerusalem, forewarned by the Holy Spirit that bonds and imprisonment awaited him. An entirely false accusation was leveled at him by his own people. He was nearly lynched by a religious mob and ended up in the Roman prison. This was all in Jerusalem. Having escaped a flogging only by pleading citizenship. His whole case was beset by a mockery of justice. For though all right was on his side, he could not secure a hearing. He was made the subject of unjust and unprovoked insult and shame, malicious misrepresentation and deadly plot. He was kept imprisoned owing to official craving for popularity or for money or because of an over-punctilious facade of legalism. Even then, his sufferings were not over. There came the prolonged trial of the storm at sea where his life hung as it seemed by a thread both because of the elements and because of petty officiousness. Eventually, when he reached Rome, it was far from the ambassadorial entry he had doubtless looked for. He came in the company of the condemned, bound by a chain and destined to drag out at least two years under arrest, awaiting the uncertain decision of an earthly king. Needless to say, 
there has been some significant setbacks in Paul's plan. Beset by corrupt officials, red tape, injustice, unprovoked shame, deadly journey by sea. Remember the, remember the story of the snake bite on the island? Treated among the actual criminals. So what is packed into what happened to me, those few words, is years of frustration and uncertainty and danger and misunderstanding and now literal chains. And when you compare this to Paul's original plans for coming to Rome, it it becomes even more crushing. So Paul will write in Romans 15, this may have been what Lonnie was going to preach today. He will write in Romans 15, remember, he writes Romans before he writes Philippians. So what he writes here was his initial plan for how to get to Rome. He wrote Romans when he had never been there yet. So what I'm about to read, he wrote years before. Romans 15, 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. This is Paul's naive plan, if I can say so. He had a unique ministry as an apostle, and he thinks, look, I've I've finished my ministry insofar as I have in in central and eastern Mediterranean. Now I'm heading west. I'm going to stop in Rome, enjoy company by you guys for a while, be resupplied by you on my way west towards Spain. Then you read this in verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. This is ominous foreshadowing when we read this on the other side. We realize, indeed, Paul will make it to Rome, but not the way he intended, because after all, things happen to him. It's incredible how he refers to this whole ordeal. In the Greek, it's actually three words, three little words. The the longest word is three letters, three tiny little words. He says, some things happened to me. Luke spends eight chapters covering it in Acts. What Luke spends eight chapters covering, Paul says in three words. Clearly, he does not wish to reflect on his own plight. But I review all of that Because I want you to see and hear and feel and put yourself in that situation to understand that what is packed into what happened to me has resulted in a situation where gospel advancement is not likely. This is an unlikely scenario for gospel advancement. Paul's not able to do his normal thing. He's not able to be in the public square, in the marketplace, evangelizing. Instead, he is physically chained in prison. Yet, he writes, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Yes, believe it or not, just as McShane wrote to his parishioners there in Scotland, this unexpected turn of events has not had adverse effects on the gospel. It has actually served to further the gospel. There's two things here in this text I want us to see that are, that are kind of hard to notice. The first one, if you're reading in the ESV, is this word, really. Really is not an intensifier. It's, Paul is not saying the gospel has advanced a lot. Instead, really is meant to be a contrast. It's like he's saying the gospel has actually, despite what you would expect, the gospel has actually advanced a lot. He's trying to draw a sharp contrast between the first half of the verse in what has happened to me 
in what actually happens in the second half of the verse. There's a, there's a change, an unexpected turn of events even in this verse. Second thing we should notice here, and I don't know if this was intentional for Paul, so I don't want to presume, but I do think it's worth noting. The Greek word for advance and the Greek word for hindrance are one letter different. There's one extra letter in the word for hindrance than there is for advance. So you, you can imagine, you, you put yourselves in the, in the shoes of the Philippians reading this for the first time, and they think they know what's coming. Because I want you to know, brothers, that you know, what has happened to me, and they, they know has really served to hinder the God. Wait a minute. That says, it says advance. Not hinder. It's not served to hinder the gospel. What, what we thought was happening has not happened. In fact, the, 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 there's good being done for the gospel because of what has happened to Paul. It's as if he's saying, look, look, Philippians, listen closely. Read, read this carefully. What's happening here is not what you would expect. I may be bound But be assured, friends, the gospel is not bound. It's his main point. He gives us the main point of this whole text right there in the beginning in verse 12. The gospel is more powerful than these chains. And no, no, no. It's not more powerful to get me out of the chains. That's not the point. It's more powerful because even though I am in chains, it is not. It's the title of our sermon is the unbound gospel. That's Paul's situation. And the principle we see behind this situation is this. Gospel advancement is not contingent on circumstance. Gospel advancement is not contingent on circumstance. It is not bound by our plans. What if the gospel were bound by Paul's initial plans? Well, he doesn't really get to visit the churches in Rome. He doesn't get to go on to Spain. Oh, well. No, it's not bound by our plans and circumstances. It's not bound by the governing authorities. We also read that in Acts chapter 4. Though they had been threatened and warned not to preach, they went on doing so all the more boldly. So I, I want to just draw out an application here for us as we, as we move into the new year. This sermon was initially going to be preached on January 2nd, but it, it works on December 25th. As we move into a new year, listen, church, all of life is ripe for gospel advancement. All of life is ripe for that. Undoubtedly, this year, at some point, you will find yourselves in situations you did not expect. Or you will find yourself in the exact same situation you feel like you've been in forever and the monotony and the routine are maddening to you, maybe even embittering for you. You need to remember that all of life, whether monotonous or whether unexpected, is ripe for gospel advancement. The gospel is not bound by your plans, your circumstances, your inabilities, your insufficiencies, which you are insufficient, by the way, if nobody's told you that recently. It's not bound by the government. It's not bound by your job or your children or your schedule. If you belong to the Lord, if you belong to God, he has free reign over every square inch of your life. So therefore... Every square inch of your life is ripe for the advance of the gospel. 
if we give ourselves wholly to this idea, we may be surprised the areas in which the gospel advances that we otherwise would not have expected. We have some work to do here, though, before we can move on. What does Paul mean by gospel advance? I want you to see the big picture of what he's doing in this text. So what he says in verse 12 is his main point. Everything verse 13 and following is just commentary on verse 12. Everything verse 13 and following is just commentary on how, where, why, when, among whom is the gospel advancing. But notice his language will change. He's still talking about gospel advancement in verses 13 through through 18, but he doesn't use the words gospel advance anymore. He begins to couch his language with Christ. Look Look down at your text. Verse 13, my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14, the brothers have been emboldened to speak the word and implied their word of Christ without fear. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. It's evident that for Paul, gospel advancement is tied to Christ's proclamation. That's key. I don't know if this will work. This visual might totally flop. Sorry if it does. If you think mathematically, if you think, you think gospel over advancement, like a fraction, right? Sorry for some of you. Gospel over advancement equals Christ over proclamation, right? So gospel uh, advance and proclamation have the same idea. Cancel the common denominators. What are you left with? The gospel is Christ, right? The gospel is Christ. That's the point of this connection Paul is making. At the core of the gospel is a person, Christ. This is what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, Boil that down. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel I preached to you, here it is. I delivered it to you as of first importance. What is it? There's even a colon in there in 1 Corinthians. It's so clear in 1 Corinthians 15. What is the gospel I preached to you? Colon. Christ buried and resurrected. Christ crucified, dead, and buried. If you need clarity on what the gospel is, hear this. The gospel is the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Why only among you Jesus Christ and him crucified? Because there is only good news in Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no good news outside of that. There's no resurrection from the dead outside of that. As Walt prayed earlier, there is no uh, making all things new in the end outside of Christ. There's no future hope. There's no progress. There's no advancement. There's no reconciliation, no restoration, and certainly no salvation outside of Christ. Romans chapter 1. We remember the thesis of the whole book of Romans. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's only true because Christ is the center of the gospel. If Christ is not the center of the gospel, there is no power of God for salvation. So, when you think of the word gospel, this would be a good test case for yourselves later today. Ask yourselves, what is the gospel? And just try to answer it. When you think of gospel, if you don't think of the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then whatever it is you think of is not the power of God for salvation. I'm not sure what to call it, but it's not the gospel. Here's why, here's why I draw this point out of Paul's language. See, we can marvel at the advance of the gospel despite unexpected circumstances. We can marvel at how unbound the gospel is going forth in this crummy situation. But if we miss it, if we get the gospel wrong, who cares? If the gospel isn't Christ crucified, who cares what's going out? It doesn't really matter in the end. I'm concerned for this because I think, I don't want to say us, maybe many of us, but I think by and large, the culture of evangelicalism we, we call many things gospel that are not gospel. We, call, we claim many things to be the gospel which are not the gospel. We can be guilty of definition creep, right? This word saturates our, our faith. It saturates our Christian language and lingo to the point where it gets transformed from a message about a person <clears throat> to a concept, it's this, it's this Christian construct. It's this magic dust that we just sprinkle on everything. And when the gospel sort of just gets sprinkled on things, magic happens. Then we're surprised when magic doesn't happen. It's because that's not the way it works. The gospel is, is, is substance. It's not, it's not inspirational rhetoric. It's a person. It's a message about a person. So, Be assured, the gospel is not God loves you. That's not the gospel. The Bible is not the gospel. I'm getting picky here, but I want you to be clear. Don't just say the Bible is the gospel. What does that mean? The gospel is not one day God will make all things new. He will, but only through Christ, because in Christ all God's promises are yes. We cannot skip over the whole point of the Bible. It's the centerpiece of the gospel. His clarity here, Paul's clarity here in connecting gospel advancement with Christ's proclamation is helpful because a Christless gospel is just powerless. But furthermore, a Christless gospel is dangerous. If you have children... And you want to ensure a crisis of faith for them in their 20s? Confuse the gospel for them when they're eight. Now, hear me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So nothing we do in our children ensures that they will believe. But if you want to ensure they're confused, confuse the gospel now. If you want to be sure that their remedy for guilt and shame is hard work and determination then preach a Christless gospel. 
Because in the end, hard work and determination does not save. It actually damns. And Jesus knew this. Do you remember these words, these, these trembling words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7? Those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not, you know, perform many miracles in your name and cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name? Surely those folks think they know the gospel. They're, they're pleading with Christ that, hey, we did something. Jesus will say, you know, depart for I never knew you. The gospel they thought they knew will send them to hell because it is Christless. So listen, whatever you believe, Christian, Christian talking to, whatever you believe, whatever you proclaim, if Christ alone is not at the center of it, do not dare call it gospel because it is not and it will not save you. Paul has no room for a Christless gospel. Three times in the New Testament, he will call the gospel mine. He says, my gospel. And all three of those times, either immediately before or immediately after, is Christ. It's a connection he makes every time. Christ's proclamation is gospel advancement. Because the gospel is the, life, the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus In Paul's situation, the preaching and proclaiming of Christ results in gospel advancement, as he has just said, on two fronts. This brings us to our second point. Verses 13 through 17. How has the gospel advanced? Well, Paul says, it's advanced in two directions, on two fronts. First, we have front number one, verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. On this front, the gospel is advancing to unbelievers, to pagans. Front number two is verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. On this front, the gospel stirs up the Christians in Rome. They're emboldened to speak the word of Christ. So let's look at both of these. Front number one, the gospel is advancing, he says, among the imperial guard and all the rest. Well, this is the, the Roman praetorium. These are, these are the large company of soldiers. They would have been handpicked, highly trained, and their charge was to guard the emperor and to guard the palace and then, by extension, his, his prisoners. So from among these men would have come those that came to guard Paul and not just stand by the door. They would have physically been chained to him. So guard gets one shackle. Paul gets the other shackle. Paul's not going anywhere. The guard doesn't go. He is under house arrest, uh, we, we, we believe. So he, he might have some measure of freedom, we think. You know, he does uh, have the freedom to, to speak with the churches and to write these letters uh, but he is chained to a person for two years. And every four hours or every eight hours or every 24 hours, whenever shift change comes along, he gets a new buddy. He gets a new companion, right? And these elite soldiers, they would have been committed, the most committed to Caesar's cause, to the cause of the emperor, to the, to the deities of the emperor. So get this, Paul is chained 
24-7 to a pagan, idol-worshiping, trained, killing machine. I think he would probably find it strange the amount we can complain about sitting next to someone on an airplane seat for a few hours, right? Two years or more, this has been Paul's situation, chained to a person. And the report to the Philippians is, get this, over time, it has become evident to these folks that I am not here for normal reasons. I'm not here because I've committed crime. I'm not here because of political punishment like some others. It has become known, he says, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul is stuck on the inside, but the gospel is advancing because Christ is being pointed to. Not just among the guards, but even all the rest. What this means is really unclear, what all the rest means. But what is clear is that Paul's imprisonment is having a ripple effect. The gospel is having a ripple effect there in prison. It appears that some guards may have actually believed in Christ because when he comes to the salutation at the end of his letter to the Philippians, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So get this, if, if some of Caesar's household is becoming believers, Paul, without knowing it, is functioning as a Trojan horse, Right? He, he, has, he has infiltrated under the guise of imprisonment, Paul not knowing any of this, under the guise of imprisonment, Paul has infiltrated Caesar's domain with the message of Christ. And the, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is, is creeping into the upper echelons of the Roman Empire. This is a higher target than Paul aimed at. He was just swinging through Rome to go to Spain. And now here he is affecting the upper echelons of the Roman Empire. Possible because Paul is sold out to this cause. I mean, if, if half of what happened to Paul happened to most of us, we would be so bitter, frustrated, pulling our hair out, disoriented. We would be miserable folks. And more than likely, the advance of the gospel would be the last thing on our minds as we wallow in our misfortune. I wonder if that's ever true. If we, if we get in these situations where we just sort of, we just sort of flip off the Christ-likeness switch, right? Maybe, I don't, I don't know what those situations are for you, but maybe you feel validated. Okay, so whatever has happened to me, I feel validated. It'd be, be a little, little short, a little testy, a little self-absorbed. Or maybe, maybe you just kind of shut down altogether and just, you just sort of insulate yourselves from, from the world. Remember what we said, that all of life is ripe for gospel advancement. All of life is opportunity to make it known that you belong to Christ. Ask yourself, is there, is there doubt among the people that you know that your life belongs to Christ? Because see, for Paul, there was no doubt among the, the imperial guard who he belonged to. In, uh, in Ephesians, this is fascinating, I think. Paul writes Ephesians the same time he writes Philippians, the same time he's in this prison. This is what he writes at the end of Ephesians. He asks for prayer. Remember, he's, he's writing Ephesians in the same situation he's writing Philippians. He asks for prayer. He says, pray that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's Paul's mindset while he's in prison. Every time I open my mouth, pray that gospel might spill out. Every time I open my mouth, I pray that Christ would come out. And God has blessed this disposition of Paul because word has spread. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Christ is becoming known and the gospel is advancing on front number one. Front number two is gospel advance among believers. Paul's imprisonment, this is verse 14, Paul's imprisonment has given confidence to most of the Christian brothers in Rome. They have been emboldened to speak the word fearlessly. Now, uh, without knowing, the Philippians might have feared the opposite was true, right? If the, if the, leader, if the leading apostle is thrown in prison, what's that going to do to everybody else? Are you going to have a situation like you had with the disciples on Saturday after Jesus was killed on Friday night? They're in the room. They seem to have had the door locked, at least they do on Sunday, wondering who's next? What does this mean? Everything we thought we knew has has crumbled and they're just kind of cowering? Well, cowardice is not the response in Philippi (coughs) when the leading apostle is thrown in prison. (coughs) It's much like the situation that Walt read from Acts chapter 4. There, uh, Peter and John had been arrested. They had spent the previous night in prison. They had been warned not to preach this gospel. They go back and join up with the other Christians and they're commenting on the way they've just been treated And this is what they prayed in Acts chapter 4 in light of this situation. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the same response of the brothers in Rome. They're prompted to proclaim Christ with boldness. The Christ is more readily on their lips as they go about their day. And if we situate this historically, we see this emboldening as an act of faith because the temperature towards Christians is rising in Rome in the early 60s. AD. One commentator wrote that storm clouds are brewing for Christians right now in Rome. Times are moving toward the peak of Nero's madness, and Christians are beginning to fall under suspicion. It will only be two years later after Paul writes this that Rome will burn, and, and uh, Nero will use the Christians as a scapegoat and blame the burning of the city on the Christians. And in his torturous campaign against them will commence two years after Paul writes this. But not before the Christian community has been emboldened and inflamed and encouraged to speak of Christ all the more. So could it be that God has sovereignly placed Paul in Rome to prime the pump? To get the Christians ready for what is about to come. To embolden the church. He writes in verse 16 that I am put here. 
uses the passive voice. He didn't say, I came here on my own. He said, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul recognizes there is, there is providence and there is orchestration of God happening behind him that he is not in control over. This second front of gospel advancement is among the brothers, but there is more to the story on this second of the two fronts. It seems as if not all of the brothers are preaching with pure motives. We find this in verses 15 through 17. So if you're thinking about the structure again, 15, 16, and 17 fit up into 14. They kind of nestle up into 14, and they're coming out of the brothers. And there's, there's two groups of, of brothers that Paul mentions in verse 14. Some preach Christ with pure motives, and some preach Christ with impure motives. Those that preach with pure motives, he summarizes this in verse 18 and says, they, pre- they proclaim Christ in truth or with true motive. Verse, um, verse 15 says they do it out of good will because they love Paul. Paul's in prison. They're taking up the mantle, if you will. They're taking up Paul's evangelistic mantle and continuing what he cannot do on the outside in his behalf. Because they love him. They're not ashamed to be associated with the Apostle Paul. The other group, however, (coughs) is preaching Christ with impure motives. Verse 18, Paul says these folks are preaching Christ from pretense. They're preaching not out of love for Paul, but out of affliction, hoping to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They preach Christ from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. Now, this creates the quandary for commentators because they wrestle with who exactly these folks are. In chapter 3, Paul will mention some opponents, but it doesn't seem likely that we can connect these with the opponents of chapter 3 because those opponents are Judaizers, much like we find in Galatians. In fact, he says, watch out for the evildoers. He calls them dogs, those who would mutilate the flesh. Well, we can't, we can't say that these, uh, these opponents here in chapter 1 are the same opponents of chapter 3 because if so, Paul would not have been, uh, would not have, uh, been rejoicing that they were proclaiming Christ. They're envious of Paul. They're desiring to prove, uh, they're desiring to, to, to steal from Paul something. They don't necessarily want it themselves. They just want Paul to not have it. They have a rivalry with him. You, you can imagine that maybe they, they feel like Paul is encroaching on their territory. Like Rome is their territory for the gospel. Paul, you belong over there, not here. They have selfish ambition, like, like maybe, maybe they, they don't have the same following Paul does. They don't have quite the same clout that Paul does, and they, they want that. This is, by the way, the same selfish ambition Paul will say in chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition. He might have a few individuals in the back of his mind as he writes. And they're thinking to cause him affliction in his imprisonment. Maybe if their influence on the outside can rise, comparatively, that will water down Paul's imprisonment, or Paul's influence in prison, and it will kind of be like salt in his wound, that they're outdoing on the outside the very thing he wants to do but can't because he's stuck in prison. That's their attitude, and it's quite confusing. 
why Paul does not just come out and condemn these folks. They're, they're proclaiming Christ from pretense. They have selfish ambition, this unchristlike mindset. The envy and rivalry, these are two words, both of which are used in the vice list of Galatians chapter 5. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yet Paul says it's indicative of these brothers. So what do we make of it? Well, we don't know their identity, but here's a few things we can piece together. One, they are Christian brothers. They are a subset of the brothers Paul mentions in verse 14. Grammatically, this is the only way it can be read, that, that, some, that most of the brothers in 14, some of which preach Christ out of envy, and others of which preach Christ out of goodwill. It's grammatically the only way that can be read. So we must see these as a subset of the Christian brothers in verse 14. They're preaching the true Christ in verse 15. He says they preach Christ. In verse 17, they proclaim Christ. Like I said, if they were part of those, those Judaizing opponents, Paul would not have honored this. He would not have been able to say anything good about them. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, Paul's detractors were preaching the biblical Jesus. It's not that they were anti-Christ. They were just anti-Paul. They're Christian brothers preaching the true Christ, and their motives are sinful. Paul doesn't really elaborate, but you know he has to be grieved over this. He's not grieved that they're trying to afflict him, but he's just grieved over their sin, right? The, the, success, the so-called success of their gospel is not an indication of the good motives of their heart. Their motives are sinful. So the big question is, why does Paul let this slide? Why doesn't he just outright call them out? Well, I think what's happening is that something similar to Romans 14. You remember the strong and the weak we've been talking about for several weeks. <coughs> it's a situation where <clears throat> some have more fully appropriated the effects of the gospel for their Christian freedoms, the weak, and others have not so fully appropriated the effects of the gospel for their Christian freedoms. Those are the strong. Indeed, it's not ideal. Indeed, Paul would like to see the the weak strengthened in their understanding of the gospel, but that's not where he presses in Romans 14 because that's not his point. His point is, be it weak and strong, it's going to happen. We need to live together in, in harmony because that honors the Lord. His point isn't to strengthen the weak. Well, I think the same thing is happening here in Philippians. Yes, these brothers' motives are sinful, and yes, that's a problem, but he doesn't address it because that's just not his point. His point is to communicate with the Philippians what's happening in Rome. And in fact, it would be quite strange if he was talking to the Philippians and then got sidetracked refuting people who would never even read this letter. It'd be be like Paul's writing in his own little world and the Philippians are reading something that doesn't even apply to them. So no, he he does not change course. He passes over what is a legitimate issue of sin so he can land on his main point, his singular aim. So this brings us to our, our final point. Paul's response is maybe not what we would expect. His response personally is maybe not what many of us would do if we were faced with this kind of opposition. But here's what he has to say. In light of those preaching out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and affliction, he says this in verse 18. What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You could boil the whole text down for Paul to say this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel among unbelievers. It served to advance the gospel among believers, and praise God. No mention of of the envy and rivalry, because that's beside the point for Paul. That's, That's just not what's at the front of his mind. It's immaterial. It doesn't affect his ability to rejoice in the fact that Christ is proclaimed. These these little fiery darts, these little teeny tiny arrows they're trying to shoot at Paul to hurt him, he just deflects them because it's no big deal. It's not an issue for him. He's not interested in playing that game. His his, His mind is not set on these carnal issues of territory and rivalry and ego and ambition. That's not where Paul is. At the end of the day, he has his priorities straight. He doesn't allow these lesser matters, which he can't control anyways. He doesn't allow these lesser matters to distract him from greater matters. So when you hear that, that that Paul has his priorities straight, I want to be careful with something. I want to make sure that the message you hear is not, I need to get my act together. Like Paul's got his priorities straight, need to get my priorities straight. That is a Christless gospel. Train yourself to understand what is a Christless gospel. A Christless gospel reads the text and say, well, boy, I need to get my priorities straight so that I can react that way too. No. Think, think, think about this carefully. How is it that, that Paul can respond this way in the singular aim of the furtherance of the gospel, even his crummy situation remains at the forefront? Why can he do that? Because he sees God rightly. He sees God appropriately. He has a right theology, you could say, that allows him to maintain this focus. So two ways, two ways that Paul has this right theology. Remember, we're not just trying to get our priorities straight here. We're trying to, we're trying to, we're trying to correct. If we, if, we have this, if we have this incorrect, we're trying to correct by, by setting our minds rightly on the Lord. So first, Paul, Paul sees the providence of God at work in every situation. Calvin calls these... Um, these, these folks preaching from impure motives, he calls them depraved affections. So Paul knows that those who preach with depraved affections can still be for gospel advancement because the providence of God is at work in every situation. And God uses insufficient instruments. That's all he's got to work with for one matter, right? He always got insufficient instruments to work with. The second theological point that Paul has straight He just has a big view of God and a big view of God's purposes. So Paul's free from bitterness. Like I said, these fiery darts, they're just hitting and bouncing off because they're not not reaching where Paul's focus is. I want to read this in Ephesians. Remember, Ephesians is written at the same time as Philippians. This is where Paul's mind is. Listen to this. Chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. This is where Paul's mind is. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
That's Paul's mind. Who cares if some folks are trying to hurt his feelings? He, he, he laughs at that because his mind is rightly set on a big view of God and God's purposes. His mind is set cosmically on what God is doing. So these, these, these intentions of hurt feelings mean nothing to him. He's free from bitterness. He doesn't have to play that game. It allows him to maintain focus on this singular aim of the glory of God in Christ crucified. So I want, I want to submit this to you. We've been talking about Paul's theology just now. His theology is dictating his life. <clears throat> what you believe about God, his purposes, his glory, his providence, his sovereignty, his goodness, his care for you, his grace and his mercy... What you believe about God actually does dictate how you live. It really does. And I would submit to you that what you, the way you live is actually a better indicator of what you believe about God than is what you say you believe about God. So let me say that again. I think the way you live is a better indicator of what you really believe about God than is what you claim to believe about God. What we believe actually does dictate how we live. What a great reflection as we move in to the new year that our relationships and our time management and my pursuits and my aspirations, all of these things ought to be in line with what I believe about God. And where they are not in line, they need correcting. For Paul, there is no greater cause than the cause of Christ. And if what we believe about God is true, that is an objective fact. That there is no greater cause than the cause of Christ. That is true, Christian. There's no hope. There's no dream. There's no fulfillment. There's no aspiration ever been conceived by man that is greater than the cause of the glory of Christ in the world. He is the centerpiece of history. I'm so grateful for that prayer from Walt. I don't know how many of those centered on Christ in the Old Testament. The centerpiece of the Bible, the centerpiece of history. If you were here Friday night in our Christmas Eve service, Lonnie reminded us that Jesus is our Savior and our King. So to advance the gospel is to advance the name and the cause of our crucified Savior and conquering King. Remember, we said at the beginning, gospel advancement tied to Christ's proclamation. Do not separate them. This is the charge to you as we close. Think of gospel advancement as a filter for all of life. Again, what a great reflection as we move in to the new year. Big decisions or or ordering your daily routine, right? Thinking about money and time and relationships and parenting, the gospel advancement as a filter for all of those things changes the way what we think about God actually means for our life. I want to close with this quote from D.A. Carson. He says this, Paul's example is impressive and clear, 
Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called to put we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. So what are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grandchildren grow up? To find a new job? To retire early? None of these is inadmissible. But none is to be despised. The question is, whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed into the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. May it not be so of us, church. We are ambassadors of a king in a kingdom and the message of that king is unbound by our circumstance. So may we say confidently, whatever may come, pretense or truth, if Christ be proclaimed, I rejoice. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the example of the apostle in these verses. I put up my own life in comparison to these words, God, and I see so much discrepancy. I pray that you would free me from grumbling. Would you free us from grumbling? Would you free us from changing our dispositions based on circumstance? God, would you forgive us for those times that we flip off the Christ-likeness switch? God, would you have grace on us? These are not things we do. We don't, we don't keep that switch flipped up by hard work and determination. We do so by grace. And it's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. So we pray as we move into this new year for an increased measure of grace, God. And <clears throat> we ask that you help us to not take time off from this. We may take vacation from work this week, but we do not take vacation from Christ crucified as the center of our life. Might you keep that at the forefront of our minds this day and this week as we prepare ourselves for the next year? Would you keep the gospel advancement as a filter for all of life in front of our eyes? Thank you for this service. And as we move now to observe the Lord's Supper, I pray that it would be a time where we Remember what you have done for us. We've talked much of the message of your son's death, burial, and resurrection. And that is what we remember as we do this. We thank you for the blood that was spilled and the body that was broken for us undeserving sinners. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.